As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, again, we come on this Sunday, set aside by you for us to, to gather in your presence. We trust that you've been pleased with how we've addressed you this morning in our prayers and in our songs of praise and prayers as well. Trust that in your good pleasure you will now bless us by laying open to us that which is your very word, the truth, and help us as we think about it together. Uh, Pray that our thoughts are right, that they're pure, and that this very word comes to us in power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the gospel according to Mark in chapter 1. I'm just going to concentrate on two verses, 14 and 15, but let me please read beginning with verse 12 through verse 20. Mark in chapter 1, please, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is, Jesus, out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, I want to take up, if God will help me, just this verse, really, 14 and verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. If I could say it like this, this is really the guts of it. If, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, uh, and you're here and you want to know what all the fuss is all about, it's about that. And if you are a Christian, this should... This should be, in a sense, your story. You should have embraced this. You go, yes, that's really, that's really the guts of this Christianity. That's the really guts of me being a believer in Jesus. That's the guts of me being a, a follower of Jesus, this gospel. All right? Now, now John, the Baptist, as we call him, uh, prepared the way for Jesus. It was said in the Old Testament that one would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And so when Jesus comes... John understands his work is to preparing the way of the Lord, that God is going to come, and, and thus Jesus comes. John, you remember, we talked about this last Sunday. John prepared the way uh, by, uh, uh, by baptizing. And this baptism was a sign of, of cleansing. Uh, to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the presence of God, required that one be cleansed. And so baptism water, just like in the Old Testament, was a sign 
of cleansing to be in the presence of God. Now, it was just an external sign. So it didn't do anything. Baptism didn't and doesn't do anything except point. And this sign then was that there's a sign of cleansing. And and, and to, to really be effective, if you will, there needed to be repentance, right? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That, that to be in the presence of God was an admittance that you had sinned against him. And that you really didn't deserve to be in his presence. But, but, but that you had sinned against him. But you were coming to him to be forgiven. And so, so baptism symbolized, if you will, all of that in these people's lives. So he's preparing the way of the Lord. He also prepared the way of the Lord by announcing that another was going to come. That the Lord was actually going to come. That uh, that John's baptism was with water, but the one who was to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that this would be an internal thing. This would be a work of God. His baptism, the work that he could do because he was the Lord. He was powerful. And John was just John. And he was powerful. The, his, the very work of the Lord would come and, and he would baptize you with his Spirit in such a way that you would be really cleansed. And that his spirit would come upon you. And that you would be enabled then to, to, to obey. To live this out. To be one who belonged to God. And so, so that was this one who was to come. So he prepared, John did the way of the Lord. By, by, by laying out this way of cleansing. But then by also announcing that the Lord was going to come. And then he prepared the way by actually baptizing Jesus. Which was perplexing to John. Because... He would wonder why should I be baptizing you? Should you be baptizing me? But but it was right for John to baptize Jesus because Jesus came to identify with sinners, to identify with us, to take upon Himself our guilt. And and Jesus could look through this baptism and see this baptism that would be in the fountain of His own blood, and He knew that that had to take place. For forgiveness of sins to happen. Because as we mentioned last Sunday. That forgiveness. While it's free to the one forgiven. Is costly to the one who forgives. And God is the one who forgives. God is the one. Whose law has been broken. Who's been offended. And so. So God. In the second person of the Trinity. Takes the cost. Of forgiveness upon himself. That he could forgive us. And so sinned against him. He bears the cost. Jesus does that. So all of that is, is, is looked uh, at in this baptism. This baptism of Jesus. And then you see. There is this great affirmation. This affirmation from father and spirit. That yes. Jesus is the very one who's come to do this work, sent by God. The Spirit comes upon him, in him, and, and the Father affirms, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, what's fascinating here is that John, you know, he's kind of like, just gives us these little, these little statements. Every once in a while he pauses, but, but he's really moving along quickly. And, and the next thing that pops up is that, that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness... To be tempted by the devil. And that's pretty much all John gives us. If you read in the other gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke especially. You'll find a great detail. As to what went on there. In that whole temptation scene. But for whatever reason. Mark doesn't, doesn't care for us. To, to really think about that at the moment. 
But we do realize that if Jesus is really going to represent us, if he's really going to represent us, then it doesn't surprise us that he encounters this Satan because that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. And so, so, so Jesus representing us sort of goes back, if you will, to take up our fight. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve were, were created, of course, the tempter comes to tempt them away. And, and the, the garden was to be the very dominion of God. It was to be the place where God ruled and reigned. And, and they were to reign under God and, and have dominion over the earth. And, and the evil one comes to, to, in a sense, you get the sense of trying to snatch that away, to kind of destroy that dominion of God. And he, and he does it by coming to Eve and then to Adam. And, of course, they side with the evil one. And there's a sense in which at that moment in time we wonder what happened to this dominion, this rule, this kingdom of God as another kingdom come. And so Jesus, in a sense, retraces those steps for us. And he comes in the very power of God. He comes with the very rule of God. And he meets this very one, Satan. And then he leaves that wilderness place, that place of fasting, and he leaves that lonely spot and he goes out and begins and he begins to announce what's happened here and what's really come. And notice how John, or Mark puts it. He says, now after John was arrested, John's out of the scene now. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, not Jerusalem, amazingly and interestingly, but into, into the, the other country there, into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, it's important, I'm going to be really Captain Obvious today, okay? Just, but this is good for us. We need, we need a little obvious sometimes. But you notice that it's the gospel of God. Now, that's of great importance, you see. That, that we, we stop and realize that it's the gospel of God. It's not Mark's gospel. I often put in the bulletin or say the gospel of Mark. And then we mustn't confuse ourselves by thinking this is Mark's idea, you know. But, but it's the gospel of God. It's the good news of God. And that's important, you see, because, because what we're being asked to do is to repent and believe. I'm going to get into that later in a bit. But, but, but the sense of repentance means that we leave all of what was the former life behind and come and follow him to trust him. In other words, everything, we're, we're, we're in a sense giving up everything to, to follow him. And I mean, Jesus puts it very starkly and Mark uh, lays it out um, very clearly in, in, in chapter 9, for instance, in verse 43, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? I'm speaking figuratively here. If you're not, we'll have a bunch of one-eyed or one-armed people, one-handed people in the church. But if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
For everyone will be salted with fire, you see. We got this sense of, he says, this is, this is what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to, 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 to turn away from sin. You see, to turn, turn away. This former life, to turn away. In fact, we all know this, this incident that took up later in, in Jesus' ministry. Mark has it in chapter 10. And it's this rich young man who comes to Jesus and he wants to inherit uh, eternal life. And so uh, Jesus says to him, um, you know the commandments. Uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother, you see. And, and, and the, the man said to Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now that's his testimony. It may not be his mom's, right? But that's his. Uh, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Well, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And you see, what, what Jesus is saying there is that if anything keeps you from the kingdom, if anything keeps you from following after the Lord, and you should rid yourself of it. And see, it's so important then, if, if all of this hangs in the balance, for us to be convinced that this is the gospel of God. It's not my idea, it's not your idea, it's not Mark's idea, it's not some philosopher's idea. This is God's way. And he's saying, this is the way that it is. You see, the alternative to this is hell. The alternative to this is death. The alternative to this uh, is horrible. And so he says, so this is the way. But, 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 but really, if, what it requires ultimately is for you to leave all behind and trust in me. And so it's crucial that we realize that it is in fact uh, the gospel of of God, his, his gospel. And notice too, that it's, it's proclaimed. It's an announcement. It isn't something we do. It's something that, that he says is here. It's something that's near this, this kingdom of God. I'm announcing this to you. I'm proclaiming to you, this to you. Jesus is saying, this is, this is really true. It's, it's from God and it's here. This is God coming to do something, uh, for for you, you can, you can trust it. I mentioned often that baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant grace. Second service, we have a baptism. Uh, baptizing Lorsen Tzchma. I just wanted to pronounce that. I just wanted to practice it before. Second service. Um, it's a dear brother. Um, this is Baptism. And we say that baptism is a seal of the covenant of grace. We mean that it's an authentic sign. The seal isn't sealing someone in, like, you know, twisting the, the, the lid of a jar and sealing someone in. That doesn't seal by that. And it, it's, it's not a seal like the animal seal, uh, but it's, it's a seal in the sense, like, like a stamp that says, this is really authentic. You can trust this. And you can trust this sign of cleansing. Uh, if you're driving down the road and you see a sign to Lord's Kansas and it's a little piece of paper and it's nailed to a, to, a, to a tree and it points that way, you might not trust it. 
But if it looks like one of those signs from the state of Kansas that's green and plain and just says Lawrence 21 miles, you can you feel like you can trust that. It has the seal on it. And he says, this sign is something you can trust. It's a seal. It's from God. This sign is from God. There really is cleansing through faith in Jesus. It's the gospel of God. You can trust him. It's good news from him. And Jesus comes to announce it. The kingdom of God is near. Everything's been fulfilled to come to this place. The kingdom of God is near. Now when the people would have heard this from the lips of Jesus, especially in Galilee, they would have a sense of what that meant. They would understand the situation in the Garden of Eden. They would understand too there that God had made a promise that one would come and crush the head of this Satan. And they saw built up through their own history a call of this man Abraham who became Abraham. They saw his descendants in Egypt be delivered. And then at Mount Sinai, it's as if this kingdom, this nation was formed. And, and there God made great promises to them. It was to be a kingdom of the power of God. It was to be a kingdom of the righteousness of God. It was to be a kingdom of great joy and blessedness. But of course they turned away from God. And God brought kings, various kings, to rule them. And, and, and most of the kings weren't good. A few of them were good kings that actually ruled them well. There was one king named David, it was said, who wasn't a perfect man, obviously, nor king, but had a heart after God's own heart. And, and God made a promise to David that a day will come when someone will sit on your throne and rule over my people. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this one who was to come. He would be a child who was born and, and the government would be upon his shoulders. His name would be uh, Wonderful God, mighty, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, all those names together. He would come and he would establish his kingdom. And then, of course, the prophet Isaiah said like this in Isaiah in chapter 52, uh, He writes, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who who says to Zion, your God reigns. See, what what the people of God have always looked for is the rule of God, the reign of God, the dominion of God, the kingdom of God. And Jesus says it's here. It's right next to you. It's near, you see. And that should be actually good news because the enemies of God would be defeated and the people of God would be blessed. You see, that's the sense of it, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God coming in this this way because it would be a kingdom of power, the very power of God. It would be a kingdom of righteousness that everything would be made right. It would be a kingdom of blessedness, great joy. For the people of God. And so that's good news. Think about the life in which we live. Think about the world in which we live. Isn't, don't we want to see a manifestation of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, making everything right, the blessedness that comes from being in the very presence of God. Isn't that what we long to see? Now, of course, there's a learning curve always in the, as, as, as Jesus was there teaching about this, this kingdom of God. 
You know, the sense from the prophets would be when Messiah shows up, the kingdom comes, all is well, that's it. But we know that's not how it plays out. And Jesus began to teach them about this kingdom. For instance, in Mark chapter 4, we have what we all know to be the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds. And he says, well, the kingdom of God is like this. There's a sower that goes out and he, and he throws seed out. And, and, and some of it's snatched up by the birds and some of it falls on rocky soil and, 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 and doesn't get good roots. And thus it dies after it comes up a bit. And then there's, there's others that falls on thorny soil and gets choked out. But there's some. Some of the seed goes on good soil and whew, produces great fruit. The kingdom is like that. You get a sense, what does he mean? Well, he tells us what he means. He says, for now, when the proclamation of this kingdom goes forth, this evil one will snatch some of it up. And some of it will, will look like that it's, it's, it's going to make it that the kingdom is, is, will manifest itself and will see the very rule of God. And, and yet what we realize is that, that, especially in the lives of these people, But the world comes around and there's tribulation in the world and there's persecution from the world and fall away. And then, and then for others, there's this, this sense of, oh, it, it's, it's, really, it's really taken root. It's really, it's really good. But, 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 but these thorns come and the thorns are, are sort of like our own sinful natures, the, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And, and we desire things other than God and other things come into our lives and it causes us and it, 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 it chokes us out. But there's some. It will really take root. And you'll see the very kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, it's mysterious how this thing's going to grow. It's, it's like a seed that grows. You know, you plant a seed, you water it, you do all that stuff. But isn't it fascinating uh, that it grows? There it goes. You know, I was sleeping and it was growing. I wasn't watching and it was, it was growing. He said, the kingdom of God will be like that. In fact, it'll be like a mustard seed. It'll be like the small seed. It'll be like the smallest that you have fairly low expectations about just looking at the seed. But, but once you plant it and it grows, it's going to grow. It really will. It's really going to manifest itself. And when it does and you see it in its fullness, it'll, it'll be able to, to, to house all the birds of the air, if you will. It'll be that sufficient, that great, that great. But, but it's going to be the kind of kingdom, you see, that in order to enter it, it requires that you be like a child. That passage I read earlier uh, this morning during our, our liturgy, if you will, that Jesus is speaking of this kingdom of God and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant to them. He said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, sometimes we think that what Jesus must have in mind is we need to be innocent, like a little child, in order to enter the kingdom. But if you've had children, or if you've been a child, you know they're not innocent, right? They simply aren't innocent. Um, bless them. But they're not innocent. They know from a very early age. I remember when we, when we were young, Karen and I, we had uh, Joshua, our first son, and, and uh, he was just beginning to learn to crawl. And 
we, we had enough money to be able to afford in what we called those days a stereo system, but we didn't have enough money in order to put it on a stand. And so it was on the floor. And so Joshua, at nine or ten months old, would crawl around and he would touch the stereo and say, you can't do that, you know. So he learned he wasn't allowed to do that. So what he would do then is he would take my finger and touch it. They're not innocent, right? They're not innocent. But what children are, are utterly and completely dependent. Children are utterly and completely dependent. When they're born, they need you to do everything, everything for them. And if you don't do it, they will die. And so he said, that's how we enter the kingdom of God. By being utterly and completely dependent upon God. His dominion, his rule, his power, his righteousness, his joy, all of that. He says, just come to me. Those who are weary and burdened. And I'll give you rest. I really will. My yoke upon you. Learn from me. Just hook up with me. Be, be mine. Right? And that's the sense, you see, of complete and utter dependence. Now, when we speak of the, the kingdom of God, we can speak of it in a variety of ways. And there's much, it, it's too varied in order for me, uh, for me to really uh, do too much uh, this morning in this, in this context. But, but, but there is this sense of the universal rule of God, that God rules over all things. For instance, Psalm 103 and uh, verse 19, uh, the psalmist writes, writes this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And so God rules over everybody. He rules over believers and unbelievers. He rules over everything, whether it's weather or nations or whatever it is. God rules over all things. But when Jesus comes and he says the kingdom, the dominion, the rule of God is, is near, it, it assumes all of that. But he's speaking more particular. He's saying, I've come now to establish my kingdom on the earth for my people. And, and so, so he's a bit more particular about that. This sense of the kingdom. Uh, uh, and he says that there will be this opposition of Satan. And he says there will be this time that, it, that it, 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 there's enemies are around. But it's, it's more particular than just this. It's this saving, restoring, making rights kingdom of God. And it's certainly future because we anticipate the perfection, the consummation of this kingdom, this kingdom coming in all of its glory so that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What the Bible is talking about is the new heavens and the new earth, God dwelling uh, amongst people, amongst his people, and, and the bliss of that, that there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more injustice, no more poverty, that all things will be set right on this earth. So it's future. But yes, it's also present. We enter into this kingdom of God now. The very rule, the very dominion of God. And Jesus comes to announce that. And he comes to announce his presence really as the king. So what I want to do in the time that we have left. Is to speak of that. To speak of this Jesus who is the king. Now. If you grew up as a Presbyterian, which most of you didn't, 
And so that's and that's fine. I'm glad you've come around. And I have to tell, and that sermon is transcribed that I was smiling when I said that. But um, but there's a question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number twenty six. Uh, the question is, how does Jesus execute his office as the king? Right? How does Jesus execute his office as the king? He's the king of this kingdom. He's coming. He announces that the kingdom of God is near. It's, it's there, right there. Jesus, the king of the kingdom. And, and, and what he's going to do, you see, is going to be a demonstration of the power of the kingdom going to be a demonstration of the righteousness of the kingdom. He's going to be a demonstration of the joy and the, and the blessedness of the kingdom. All of that. And he's, he's, he, Jesus, in him comes this kingdom of God. So how does he execute his office? How does he function? How does he do it? The answer is, Jesus executes his office as king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, And in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's good news. There's someone who's going to come and subdue us. I think of that subduing as conquering, really. That he's this conquering king and he's come. And the good news, he comes to conquer our hearts. Because we need that. We can't do that. He needs to come in and conquer us, subdue us, to, to win us, if you will, to himself. Uh, we are bought, as the scripture says, uh, with, with a price. We've, we've rebelled against him. When I was a kid in elementary school, uh, I went to, I lived in a small town. I went to an elementary school about a half a block from my house. So, and in those days... Uh, School, elementary school, we went from 9 to 12 and 1 to 4 because everybody went home for lunch. And almost always, in my going home for lunch, I had a race with a friend of mine named Ronnie Marcus. And we would race. But being two little boys, uh, we, by the time we got to the alley, we were fighting almost all the, almost every time. I don't know why that was true. Probably trying to trip each other or whatever. And we would fight. Now, the problem for me was that Ronnie Marcus had three older brothers. And I had three older sisters. So he would punch and I would scratch and bite. Right? Because that's what I learned from them. So he almost always won. So by the time I got to my house, he lived a few doors down. So I got to my house first. And I'd come in the house crying. And then my mom would know what happened. And she would say to me, I said, Mom, I just can't beat him. You know? And she would say, you know how you make, you know how you defeat your enemy? I said, how's that? She said, you make your enemy your friend. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. See, we're, we're his enemy, really. And I know we don't like to think of ourselves as the enemy of God, but we really are. There's this hostility that God has towards us because of our sin. He's going to condemn us because of our sinfulness. And, and so he has what the Bible calls enmity or this hostility, this case against us. And so we're enemies of God in that sense. What are we going to be able to do about that? Well, we can change our ways, but we won't. We can't. And, and so what happens? Well, Jesus comes. And he comes to take away that hostility 
from God to us. He comes in the very love of God and he says, I'll take the guilt of your sin. So there's no longer a case against you in heaven that you're pardoned. And then I'll give to you my righteousness so you can stand in the very presence. So when God looks at you, there's, there's nothing, there's no hostility at all. He, he can't, he can't, he, he, there's nothing for him to say except I'm pleased with you because I'm pleased with my son. And then he, then he changes our hearts too by the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. He changes our hearts so that, so that when we hear this good news, it is good news. We don't run from it, but we embrace it. And so you see, he says, I do all of that. And so we end up, because of the coming of this kingdom, the very dominion rule of God over our own hearts and lives, and we become his friend. We're no longer his enemy. And thus we're friends with God. That's the very sense of it, you see. In fact, the Bible puts it like this in Colossians in chapter 1, in verse 13. He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. You see, in this kingdom of God, this kingdom that Jesus resides over as king, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, forgiveness of sins. He redeems us, he makes us friends of God, and he forgives our sins, you see. And so we're no longer at odds with God. God is no longer at odds with us. We're no longer fighting as we run home from school, you see. We're now friends, you see. And that's the sense of it. And he's rescued us. That's his power. That's the power of the kingdom. That's the righteousness of the kingdom. In his rescue, he gives us his righteousness so we can live righteously before the very presence of God. And it's a rescue. It's a real rescue. You know, I I picture rescues very often in my mind as somebody drowning, you know, and and somebody's on the shore and they send them this life preserver, whatever you call those round things. And and the person's drowning and they know it. And so they reach out for it. You pull them in and they've been rescued. And that's wonderful. But that's not the kind of rescue that happens here. Or I think of somebody in a prison camp, you know, and, and, and I've seen too many war movies. So I, a prison camp and this sort of helicopter goes overhead and, and a, a rope is lowered with a basket and, and the prisoners have been trying to get out and they see the basket and they jump in and they're ready to get out and they, they jump in. They're rescued, a wonderful thing. But that's not what this is talking about either. Because you see, our situation is so much more dire than that. The scripture says that it was at the right time while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And you know what a sinner, someone who's a sinner, is someone who's against God, someone who says no to God. And so it's like the person who's drowning, who likes that, who loves the water. Says, no, 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 I'm fine. This is great. You know, I enjoy being in the water. Or it's the prisoner that's, that's become one with the prison camp and the, and, and, and the guards and says, I love, this is my life. I love it here. And, and you, do you want the life preserver? No, no, I don't. I'm fine in the water. You, do, you, do you want to get out of here? No, 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 no. I'm great in this place. In fact, the scripture even tells us it's even worse than that, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so it's as if the basket is lowered, it falls on our heads, and we're dead. We don't even know it. We don't even know that it's there. The scripture says we're blind. We can't even see it. It says we're deaf. We can't even hear it. And so, so this Jesus comes, you see, and does it literally all. I mean, the power of the kingdom of God, 
the righteousness of the kingdom of God comes to do everything. And as I've mentioned so many times before, the picture is Lazarus. He's dead. And it takes the power of the king to speak his name and give him life. And so you see, that's true of us for believers in Jesus. That's the power of this kingdom to subdue us. And then this answer to this question goes on. It says, he executes his office as king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us. He defends us against Satan, against the world, and even our own sinful nature. He comes to defend us. And, and he, he rules over us. He rules in his providence. The great Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. He's, he's working in his providence to, to, to rule us, defend us. He cares for us in every, in every way. And we're to literally follow him. He rules us. And that's a good thing. You see, the fact that, that God comes to us to guide us, to give us his law, to give us his precepts uh, over the, through which he rules us is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The law isn't a bad thing. It does convict us of our sin, but it guides us into that which is glorious and right and true. We should embrace the wisdom, the law, the precepts, the commandments of God. These are literally for our good. They're life-giving, not life-sucking, you see. And so we should embrace, we should embrace this, this law of God. But it's true, you see, if we're going to be in this kingdom, then it means that we're to follow him. I told this story before, but it was so profound in my life. Let me tell it again. Years ago, Karen and I were young and uh, relatively newly married, living in South Carolina at the time. And neighbors, they weren't Christians, aren't, as far as we know still. And, um, but it was one of those nights you've been there, I suspect, where you've been sharing your faith with a neighbor, and it seems to be going so well. I mean, I was just, I was just, I mean, so convinced that I had nailed every argument, that I had nailed every point, that, that I had explained the gospel in such a way that it was so clear that he would acquiesce, that he would believe. I mean, I was, I was just moving through the evening and it was great. It was about one o'clock in the morning. It was late. And finally, I just sort of called the question and just kind of said, you know, ready for him to pray with me, confess his sins and trust in Jesus. And this neighbor of mine looked at me and said, no. And I was stunned because I had done so well. And he said to me something I'll never forget. Because I asked him, I said, why? Why Why won't you believe? I mean, think about what is being offered, forgiveness of sins, heaven, glory, all this, you know. I said, why won't you accept, believe this? And he said, well, I realize that I have, if I accept the gift, I belong to the giver. He said, I don't, I don't want to be ruled by this Jesus. I said, well, you got it. That's really true. 
Now, in the kingdom, in this powerful, righteous, gracious, forgiving, merciful, compassionate kingdom, we think that's a good thing. You embrace that. Yes, of course, if I accept the gift, I belong to the giver. Who else would I rather belong to, you see? And so, so, so that's great for us. And, and that's how he executes his office. He, he rules and defends us. And he restrains and conquers all his enemies and ours. But you notice when Jesus comes and proclaims this kingdom, he says it's near. And he says, here's, here's, here's the demand of the kingdom, if we can put it that way. Uh, here, here, here's, here's the response to the kingdom, if we want to put it that way. Here, here's when the kingdom is present, this is what presses against you. Repentance and belief. If, if the kingdom of God is here, Jesus said, then you should hear that word. And if you really get what the kingdom of God is, the very power of God to rescue and save, the very righteousness of God to make everything right, the very joy and blessedness of God in your life of protection and guidance and all that. If you really get that, then you should repent. That is, turn away from everything else and believe. That's a radical shift. Well, sometimes it's rather gentle as with Lydia. You know, you're reading through the scripture, the, the, the book of Acts and come across this wonderful woman, uh, Lydia. And, and, and it just seems very quiet in her life that God opened her heart and she received the word. Or even with the prodigal, you know, it's dramatic as the prodigal son hypothetical story. But in the prodigal's life, you know, he's, he's there and he sort of comes to his senses. And of course, you have the Apostle Paul, who was very dramatic and very, you know, knocked him off his horse and all of that. And so it comes in various ways for various people at various times. And, and the realization for this, that all of this was wrong. And it isn't even that all of this makes me miserable and unhappy. There's lots of people quite happy in this. Right? I mean, if you convince yourself there's no judgment, if you can convince yourself that after you die, God forgives all people, if you convince yourself that, that there's, there's nothing after this, if you convince yourself that your life has been so bad, the next one has to be better, you can live quite happy and in peace. Many die without faith in peace. So it isn't just that I'm miserable and so I'm sorry about the life I've lived because it makes me miserable. No, no, there's the sorrow because I've offended God. The sorrow is here's this one who made me, who loves me, who desires good for me, and, and yet I've turned against him. That's the sorrow. I've offended him. And so now I make confession. I repent. I realize that's killing me. And I realize that's offending God. And so I turn from that. And I come in humility and dependence like a child. Jesus put it obviously best when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're completely bankrupt and you know it. And so you enter, you believe, you trust him. Blessed are those who mourn their own sin. They're regretful because of what has taken place in their life. And they know they've been wrong and they've offended God. And they mourn over it. Blessed are you who mourn, you'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, that is, who come meekly as a, as a child, humbly saying, I'm utterly dependent upon you and trusting upon you. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they'll be filled. That's a righteous kingdom. 
all will be made right, you see. That's the sense of it. To repent and to believe. Repentance isn't punitive, it's good. It's a gift of God. And we then are to trust and to trust in him. May I just simply end like this. Think of your life, even as I think of my life. Is this really good news that the kingdom of God has come? Is it really good news that Jesus is the king? Has he really subdued your heart? Do you really trust him to rule you, to defend you? Is it your delight to follow him? If it isn't, repent and believe. If it once was, but isn't, repent and believe. In fact, for good measure, repent and believe. Even now. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. To be gracious to us, help us. It's easy. It's easy. To forget, it's easy to slide back. It's easy to trust what we see. It's easy to think we're wise because our life usually works out when we follow our own wisdom. God, I pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would trust in you and you alone. Turn away from trusting our riches. Turn away from trusting our wisdom. Turn away from trusting our morality. Turn away from trusting our goodness. Turn away from trusting anything other than you. And to trust in you and in you alone. Father, I give you thanks on this day for the week that we've had with our family promised guests. And I pray that it was filling for us who served, for those who served. I pray that it was a great help to those who were here in our building during this week. So I would pray that you would be pleased to establish and strengthen their families to provide their need of housing and food and that they would know you and that they would know you as the great lover of their souls. Father, I pray for our dear Meki as she goes through this chemotherapy and Pray that you continue to strengthen her and to heal her. Pray for Denny Chadwick on the loss of his brother. Father, that you would be him. I pray for others, Father, who are going through various trials, be they relational or physical or emotional, spiritual temptations. I pray, Father, for them that you would be with each and every one. We give you thanks on this day for babies born. We thank you for little Lucas Joshua Crum, born to Amanda and Stephen we give you thanks for Suzanne, Leona, Bance, to Brian and, and Julia. Father, we're grateful for these little ones and we pray that you would bless them with strong and good life and faith in you. Father, we're a church and we desire that you would use us as a body in such a way that would continue to proclaim the kingdom of God with repentance and faith. And we pray that many would enter and be blessed. This I pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.